2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 first, and then we'll read from Psalm 19. Sorry, I was not prepared. And now I'm having that moment where I can't even find 2 Timothy. Goodness. It's, it's before Matthew. No. All right. Thanks. Here we go. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, or the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the servant of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The Torah, or the instruction of the Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the rules of the Lord are true and righteous, all of them. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. By them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who is there that can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the reading of God's word. So if this is your first time here, we are doing a big thing here at Refuge. We're doing what's called the Year of Biblical Literacy. And what that is, is we are reading through the Bible as a church community together in order to know the Bible, right? Firsthand. To not go to a commentary or some book on theology or a podcast or a blog, but to read it ourselves and to see what the Bible has to say for itself. And we are spending this year teaching uh, kind of a 30,000-foot view. We'll be talking about the Bible again this morning and the Bible again next week. And then we're going to go on to talk about kind of the grand narrative of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, uh, including Israel, and finally, restoration. And so we're taking this year just to immerse ourselves in the story of the Bible uh, together. And so, so far, we've talked about the problem of the Bible because... I don't have to tell you, right? You're reading it. There are problems with the Bible. There are super shady characters. Um, I just had um, a lady in our church text me this week, and she's like, God tries to kill Moses. What the heck, right? Like, it's like, okay, Moses, you are my man. Go for it. I'm commissioning you. Oh, I can't talk. I can't do it. No, you can. You can. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And then the next scene, it's like, and then the angel of the Lord tried to kill Moses. And you're like, what the? You know, like, who is this God, right? There are problems with the Bible. 
And so we are taking this time just to talk about and be honest about those problems and work through them together. I highly recommend that you do this year of biblical, biblical literacy in community. If, if you don't have time to meet regularly with a group of people, at least meet with one other person to talk through these problems. If you guys can't figure them out together, please come talk to me, come talk to Nikolai, talk to Max, talk to other people that are meeting in community, and dialogue about these things. There are good answers to these problems and these questions, and you'll never figure them out alone. You'll never figure them out if you're like, oh, this is just crazy and stupid. Well, that doesn't solve anything, right? So we talked about the problem of the Bible a couple weeks ago, and then last week we talked about the reason for the Bible, or what is the Bible for? Because that's a really good question to ask yourself before you start flipping through it and using it and wielding it like a dangerous sword that it is. What am I supposed to do with this thing, right? What is it for? And we talked about how it is given to us to know God. It's the story of God. It's given to us so that we might know the true history of the world from God's point of view. And finally, it's given to us so that we might be brought into God's story of the world. It's for our learning, for our transformation. Paul says this uh, to, I believe it's the Corinthians. He says, whatever was written before, speaking of the Old Testament, was written for our learning that we, through the patience and the comfort of the scripture, might have hope. So even use that as a guide as you're reading through Scripture. What is this for? That we, through the patience and the comfort of the Scripture, might have hope. So we talked about what the Bible is for. I highly suggest that you go back and listen to those if you haven't uh, heard them already. And I hope in this study to bring ideas from both previous studies together by talking about the authority of the Bible. So let me just say this before. There is a lot that we can say about the authority of the Bible. And you know what? Once I finished my sermon, I thought about even more things that I could say. And I'm just like, gosh, we could do this forever. So I understand that there is more. And there might even be, in your mind, more important things that I could say about the authority of the Bible. I'm sorry I didn't do that. I would love to talk to you about that afterwards if you would like to do that. So I'm going to say some stuff about the authority of the Bible this morning. Not all the stuff, okay? So, just a little disclaimer. Now, here it goes. What do Christians mean when they say things like the authority of the Bible, or the authority of Scripture? Or maybe you've heard people say things like this in reference to another church. They don't believe in the Bible, and they don't teach the Bible at that church. Or in reference to a different church, that is a good church. They believe and teach the Bible. This is, of course, a statement of not whether or not a book called the Bible exists, but belief in the authority of the Bible. And so what, what does that mean, biblical authority? How would you answer that? Is the Bible authoritative? So let's, let's talk about that, because this is an important question. So Christians have many shorthand terms like this, and we tend to throw them around. Words like atonement, salvation, Faith. I mean, do you ever hear people talk about their testimony? Oh, yeah, I was saved back in 82. And you're like, saved? Saved from what? Like, we don't say what we're talking about because other Christians know. It's shorthand, right? I was saved from my sin. I was saved from the path of destruction that I was on. How was I saved? I was saved by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He gave his life, right? That's a suitcase and a half to unpack. And so we think, say things like, I was saved. And we just figured that everybody knows what we mean. And those are helpful, 
when they are an aside to, you know, where we're going in our conversation. But often when we only use a shorthand and don't unpack these terms, they lose their meaning or begin to carry meaning they were never meant to. We have to be aware of both of these. So when we say authority of Scripture, it is shorthand for God's authority exercised through Scripture. God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is the great king of the world who has all authority and power. And this is seen through his powerful word. Right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. You can, you can look at, um, Peter talks about this. The Psalms talk about this. By the word of his power, the heavens and the earth were created. God speaks, and it comes into being. He has power behind what he says, authority behind it. He commands and it is done. There is an authority, there is a jurisdiction over the world when God speaks. And so when we talk about the authority of the Bible, it is shorthand, of course, for the authority of God. Remember, we just read this. Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is what? God breathed. These are the words of God. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting Training in righteousness, it has power behind it, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul's claim here is that Scripture, another name for the Bible, is from God, therefore it is authoritative. Now, though we often say many things about the Bible, I love this, Carl Henry, he said this, the first claim to be made for Scripture is not its inerrancy, nor even its inspiration, but its authority. The New Testament extends this authority to the entire Old Testament. We just read that in 2 Timothy 3, but also in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. There in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, we we understand that God has spoken at various times and, and in many different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So the writer of Hebrews, looking back, says, that is the word of God. He has revealed himself through the pages of Scripture. The Apostle Peter, this is wild, extends this authority to the writings of Paul, referring to his writings as the Scriptures, so of the same value and authority as the Old Testament. That's from 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. And we've talked about this already, but Jesus, of course, believed and taught the authority of the Bible. Uh, We saw this in our first study. Remember, in, in his temptation with the devil, Jesus quotes the Bible three times. Deuteronomy specifically, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus believes not only in the authority, but the necessity, the absolute necessity of God's word more than bread, more than our daily sustenance. Again, he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And finally, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I mean, this is a fascinating text when you think about that Jesus, who we understand from the Bible, is God incarnate, subjects himself to the authority of the Bible. That's, that's wild stuff right there. And I'm not going to unpack that this morning because I don't have time, and we probably don't have the brain power to do that this morning. Um, But this is some heavy stuff. Wow, what does it mean that Jesus subjecting himself to the authority of the Bible? And then at the end of Jesus' ministry, what does he say? All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. 
And then he commissions his church. Jesus believed in the authority of Scripture. He says in John 10, 35, that Scripture cannot be broken and that the Scriptures must be fulfilled in Matthew 5, 17, and 18. And this becomes an axiom of both Judaism and the early church. Jesus says, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I'm going to read something kind of heady, but I'm going to talk about what it means practically, so bear with me. Uh, This is a historical definition of inspiration and authority of the Bible. These writings, 66 books of the Bible alone, constitute the verbally inspired word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of God's will for salvation, sufficient for all God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every dominion of knowledge to which it speaks. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. As God's people hear, believe, and do the word, they are equipped as disciples of Christ and witnesses to the gospel. That comes from the Gospel Coalition's confessional statement. Now, when we talk about the Bible being authoritative, this is, this is basically what we're saying here. This is what we believe. It is the one and only true story from God. This is what we talked about last week. With laws, commands, statutes, principles, and wisdom, and much, much more, it shows us how life works best. It shows us God's way, his kingdom way. It tells us, from God's point of view, what humanity is like, what's wrong with humanity, what's wrong with the world, what went wrong, and how it will finally be put right through God's anointed king and rescuer, Jesus. So the Bible is God's authoritative word and instruction given to his people that we might live out the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven might live out God's way, might be instructed in God's way, instructed in God's character, instructed in his truth, in what God sees as just, in what God sees as what is right and what is wrong. In order to put his kingdom and peace on display. So the authority of scripture really has to do with us living under God's kingdom, reign, and rule. So do we understand that? So that when we are pushing back on Scripture, when we're saying no to the very clear commands in the Bible, we are saying, God, I don't want your rule over my life. I don't want you to be king. And here's a hard thing that that Christians often do. We'll talk about this in a minute. But Christians often say, God, I want your salvation. I want your rescue, but I don't want your authority over my life. But in the Bible, there's no place where we can do that. Do you know that, you know, we often say, you know, Jesus is your Savior. Make Jesus your Savior. Jesus wants to be your Savior. That's kind of the axiom of the church now. But do you know what the original claim was of the Christians? It was that Jesus is King and Lord of the universe. He's Master. 
And that's why it's so ironic that Peter, of all people, right, he's like the top dog apostle, that he's on constantly like, not so, Lord. And Jesus is like, okay, you call me Lord and Master, but you don't do what I say. Like, are you not picking up on the inconsistency here? And, but we do this today. We want to say, oh, uh, yes, oh, I believe in the saving you know, work of Jesus Christ. I've been forgiven of my sin. But I don't want to subject myself to the sexual ethics of the Bible. And of course, that's a hot button. We can talk about that. I don't want to subject myself to God's ideals of justice and righteousness. I want to be stingy with my things. I worked hard for these things. They belong to me. They don't belong to anybody else. I don't owe anyone. Well, you are not following the teaching of Scripture. You are living contrary to God's character. You are living contrary to his rule and to his kingdom. See, and that's what it means then. Practically speaking, the authority of Scripture has to do with living under God's kingdom, reign, and rule. So either God is king or the American dream is king. See, either God is king or you are king. You crown something. Something becomes ultimate. Something becomes life-shaping for me because we are worshiping creatures. We dedicate our lives to something. It could be romance. It could be sex. It could be success. It could be whatever, right? Fame, power. This is what we do as humans. And that, I, mean, I guess that's the other side of it. If you're not crowning God king and living under that rule, then you are subject to these other kings and rulers. And, man, you can read testimony after testimony after testimony of people whose lives have been ravaged by these things because there is real spiritual power behind these things. They're not just benign there's demonic spiritual power behind these things. So when we do not subject our life under God's kingdom, reign, and rule, we subject it to the gods, and we take upon their characteristics of selfishness, of greed, of sexual promiscuity, and the list goes on and on and on. We become like the gods that we worship. That is not in my notes, but this is very important to understand. Therefore, God's people, scripture, where God instructs us in his way of life must become the number one source of information and truth for our lives. It must become the greatest influence because otherwise we're we're subject to, to destruction. I mean, this is what you find in Psalm 1, right? The, the man or woman who subjects themselves to the word of God, who meditates on it, who takes it in, will be one who lives a life that is blessed, prosperous, flourishing is the word. It's the same term that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. They'll live a full and a flourishing life. But the way of the ungodly, they reject God's word, his authority. It's in Psalm 2. Right? They cast their, his cords from them. He will not rule over us. We will not have God's king over us. And it says at the end of Psalm 1 that the way of the ungodly perishes. It comes to nothing. But God guards or keeps the way of the righteous. 
So this is wisdom literature, I guess, what we're getting into this morning. There are two paths. There's the path of living under the kingdom reign and rule of God, and we are instructed according to that through Scripture. Or there's the going your own way, casting off on your own, being subject to the gods, the character, the will, the power of the gods, and whose end is death, the Scripture says. So the the question, I think, for us this morning is are we submitted to the authority of Scripture? I've been recommending this book, um, and I will do it again. Uh, Pick up Eugene Peterson's Eat This Book. It is an incredible, insightful read into the art of meditation of Scripture. But he says this, It is clear that we live in an age in which the authority of Scripture has been replaced by the authority of the self. We are encouraged on all sides to take charge of our lives and use our own experiences as the authoritative texts by which to live. The alarming thing is how extensively the Spirit has invaded the church. I more or less expect the unbaptized world to attempt to live autonomously, but not those of us who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. I am not the only one to notice that we are in the odd and embarrassing position of being a church in which many among us believe ardently in the authority of the Bible, but instead of submitting to it, use it, apply it, take charge of it endlessly, using our own experience as the authority for how and where and when we will use it. One of the most urgent tasks facing the Christian community today is to counter this self-sovereignty by reasserting what it means to live these holy scriptures from the inside out instead of using them for our sincere and devout but still self-sovereign purposes. We've been talking about that, how we can take, you know, there's this uh, passage in the Psalms, the Lord God is a shield and a sun, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You take a passage of scripture like that, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And you know, uprightly, I mean, that's that's graded on a curve, right? You know, so it's like, okay, let's start there. So, I mean, what do I interpret that to mean? I think I'm doing pretty good, right? And so then no good thing. Well, you know, this girl, this guy, this situation, my success here, that's a good thing. I can see how this is going to be a good thing for my life. And so I'm filtering everything and interpretation through that, my good. But it doesn't say what I think is good. It says good. And we have to read the Bible to to actually find out what God determines as good. And what God determines as good is that you live a life of justice where you care about other people more than yourself, that you live a life of righteousness, where you seek to have right relationships and not burn people and not use people, but to love and serve people. God's desire of good for your life is that you would live at peace with all people. See, so we have to go to the Bible to find out what that stuff means, and rather than interpreting it through you know, the hermeneutic of self. So as Christians, we are called to live under the authority of Scripture. And of course, we have to read Scripture in order to define what that authority is, what it looks like in the Bible. Now, 
I'm going to kind of take a turn here. This might not be what you expect. But here's something that came up for me. The Bible is authoritative. How can a story be authoritative? Because we said that, right, a couple weeks ago. The Bible is most of all and first and foremost a story. So how is a story authoritative? Well, you know, think about like Little Red Riding Hood. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But we've done this throughout history. Uh, We use story to teach principles. Have you guys ever heard of this um, German book called Stuhl Peter? I never thought I'd have the opportunity to talk about this from the pulpit. This is amazing. So, uh, Struel Peter are these German cautionary tales for children. So, there's like Harriet and the Matches. And it's about this girl who plays with matches and basically lights her head on fire. You know, so the, what's, the, what's the story? What's the principle? Through this story, don't play with matches. Or be careful when you play with matches. There's another guy who goes out hunting, and I can't remember what his name is. Well, actually, I won't talk about that one. A bunny shoots him. It doesn't make any sense. It's like Bugs Bunny before Bugs Bunny. Um, I'm dating myself for some of you. Bugs Bunny. Um, Space Jam, okay? There we go. Um, there's another one, though, called uh, Little Suck-a-Thumb. This one's awesome. Little Suck-a-Thumb is told by his mother, oh, if you keep sucking your thumb, the, thi- the, the, thither, the scissor man is going to come and visit you in the night. And he's like, yeah, right. You know, so he keeps sucking his thumb. And then mom comes home, and both of his thumbs are missing because the scissor man came, and it's just bleeding out. You know? And so these are cautionary tales, right? And so it's not so absurd to think that the Bible uses story, not just, you know, made-up stories, fairy tales, but uses true story to be authoritative and to teach us things. Now, I'm going to use Genesis as an example here, but the stories, let me just back up a little bit, the stories and grand story of the Bible were given in order to remind the people of God, Israel, now the church, of who their God is, what he has done, and promised to do in bringing his good kingdom to earth. And it's kind of that, um, if you, I grew up surfing in Southern California, and what we constantly needed sur- surfing because of the, the, the um, currents, we constantly needed a landmark to know where we were at. And so we would always use the lifeguard towers. You know, it's like, okay, how bad's the current? Well, you know, you look down and Tower 32 is now a half mile away. It's a bad current. Got to get out, go back down the beach, get back in. The Bible is like this for us. It's that marker to help us to know where we're at and to help us to know how to respond to God's word. We come back to it again and again and again to check ourselves with this authoritative story. And it's teaching us, uh, or being, we're being invited, rather, into that story to be shaped and formed, to believe him, to trust him in all circumstances. We're, we're being called again and again to align ourselves with that marker, if you will, right? The, the lifeguard tower on the shore. Align yourself again and again with that. Come back to it. Are you on? Are you in? Are you tracking with the story here? Now, we use this with the great meta-narrative of Scripture, right? That the grand narrative of Scripture has four big parts. There's creation, the world that God created and intended. There's the fall, the world of sin and death that humans created. There's redemption, the redemptive acts of God through the family of Abraham culminating in Jesus Christ and now extending through his church. And then there's restoration, the new creation which God will bring about through and because of the work of Jesus Christ. And this is the grand story of the Bible, creation to new creation. And we align ourselves as Christians with that grand story, of course, right? But I think then the question is, but what about the individual stories in books? Because, like, yeah, I just read Exodus this morning, and again, it's weird, wild stuff. 
So what about the individual stories and books? So let's talk about Genesis a little bit this morning. You guys want to do that? Let's do that, okay? Because, yeah, we've been reading Genesis, and probably some of it is like, I don't got a clue. So talk about a little bit about it. I can't do everything this morning, but I'd love to talk to you uh, outside of Sunday morning teaching on this. We won't do a Q&A this morning is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> okay, so what is Genesis for? Let me just talk about what it's not for. It's Genesis for creation versus evolution debates. Oh, I would say till like I had no breath left in me. No, it isn't. Nobody at the time of Moses was talking about this stuff, was worried or cared about this stuff. Most people in the world today don't care about this stuff. It's just Western Enlightenment people that obsess over this and are trying to force this conversation into the pages of Scripture. And I think the church has done a bad job of reacting to that and just constantly on the defense and constantly have to answer science because we're trying to defend this as a a creation versus evolution debate. That's not what it is. It's the purpose of Genesis to tell us how old the earth is. Like God has like... Okay, so just so you know, like, why, why doesn't he tell us the other things, how old they are? Well, the dinosaurs, yeah, just look, you know, in the appendix and you'll find, you know, a little note on the dinosaurs that got left for us. Like, that's just not the point. And we do this. That's not the point of the Bible. I said this a minute ago, I'll say it again. It's clear that the author of Genesis did not have science in mind when he wrote down and recorded these things. This wasn't his purpose. Though I do believe that a proper reading of Genesis, uh, I personally believe in a historical creation, or what's called historical creationism, makes place for what we know about science. We could talk about that afterwards if you want. So then what is the point of Genesis and especially the creation account? Well, let's think about for a second. Who wrote this book? Well, history tells us, and the Jews especially tell us, Moses wrote this book. Okay, Moses wrote it. When did he write it? Well, that's a good question. When did Moses write this book? Well, was it during the Exodus? No, probably not. You know, like, they didn't have time to do anything. You know, just hightailing it out of Egypt, right? Is it when he's in 40 years in the, you know, shepherding sheep? No, probably not, because he hadn't been commissioned by God yet. Most commentators believe that this was written shortly after the Exodus, Probably the second generation of Israelites, they're waiting in the plains of Moab. We'll get there in the story in a little bit. They're waiting in the plains of Moab to go into the promised land. Okay, they've already failed once to go into the promised land. Do you remember why? If you've read the Bible before. So the Israelites are promised, God has a beautiful land for you. It's flowing with milk and honey. This is a prosperous, beautiful land. The Lord God is giving it to you because he loves you dearly. You're his people. Because you are the, the children of, of Abraham, God's friend. It's just this beautiful story. And so they get to the land, and they send in these spies, and they find out there are giants in the land. Giants in the land. And there are mighty fortresses in the land. And they start hearing stories about the gods of these people, of these giant people, of these giant fortresses. And the people are filled with fear, and they don't think that God is with them or big enough or strong enough and so they're like forget this we're going back to Egypt right it was better for us there so we're going to go back to Egypt they're trying to lead a crusade back to Egypt yada 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 that people are told that they can't inherit the promised land why because they don't 
They don't trust God. After all of this, God has proven himself again and again and again and again and again. And just like Pharaoh, we find out that the Israelites were just as hard-hearted. Dang. God's people are just as hard of heart as Pharaoh. God works and speaks and moves, and they harden their hearts to what God has done. So the story goes is that generation dies off, and there's a new generation that's going to go into the land. They didn't pass through the Red Sea. They didn't experience the, the, the miraculous thing, the plagues, right? And so Moses begins to write the story of God for the people while they're in the plains of Moab because they are going in to take the land. And this land is filled with mighty warrior people. The Philistines are like Greeks that went to Egypt and then were banished by the king of Egypt to Palestine, right? That's who these Egyptians are from Kafur, and they're probably like Spartans. That's basically what we know from history. They're going to go and they're going to take on the Philistines and they're going to have to do battle with these guys. And they're going into places like Jericho and Ai and these are mighty fortresses and there are giants and there are gods behind these. Gods of war, gods of fire, gods of water, gods of harvest, gods of prosperity. And they are afraid. And so what Moses begins to do is he begins to tell the story. Oh, in the beginning, Yahweh, the great God, created all of these things. Moses does not even mention the proper name for the sun and moon because those are the names of gods. He just calls it the greater light and the lesser light. You know why? They are so small in comparison to Yahweh, they can't even be named. He is that much greater, that much stronger. And what Moses seeks to do, you guys, piece by piece, is to confirm and encourage the children of Israel. This God is your God. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop his promises, his purposes. When he speaks, there is authority in what he speaks, and nothing can stop that. And see, this word is given for their patience and their comfort that they might have hope, that they might be built up and strengthened, that they would not be afraid of the land of Canaan filled with powerful, ruthless nations, fortresses, powerful gods, It was given to build their confidence as they entered the land, being reminded that their God was the God of gods, the God of order and creation, the one who created and ruled over everything, the one who brought life and death and blessing out of cursing. He tells them the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, oh I did did a study in Genesis years ago, and it was just this beautiful theme that I saw. I think I got to Joseph by the end. It was just like, what what is the big theme of Genesis? Nothing can stop the promises of God. Not the sin of Adam and Eve, not the murder of Abel, not the rebellion of humanity, whether that is at the time of Noah or the Tower of Babel. Nothing will stop the promises of God, not the dead womb of Sarah, not the stubbornness and unfaithfulness of Abraham and Sarah, not Isaac's determination to bless Esau, Not the pragmatism of Rebekah and Jacob, not the deceitfulness of Jacob, not the deceitfulness of Jacob's sons and their cruelty to Joseph. Not slavery, not prison, not false accusation. Nothing can stop the promises of God from getting out to the world that he loves. That's a huge thing that we see in the book of Genesis. And this was given to the people of God before they entered the land. 
So the author of Genesis, Moses, sketches in broad strokes the beginning of God's redemptive history, acquainting Israel with the God of their ancestors and his acts to preserve a people and restore his kingdom on earth. Israel was commanded to let this story inform and guide their way forward. It was the way. In Deuteronomy, it's the authoritative word over their life. Remember in Deuteronomy, God commands the parents. He says, when you sit down for dinner, tell them the story. When you lay down at night, tell them the story. When you rise up, tell them the story. When you're walking, when you're on a, you know, a hike or you're traveling to a different place, tell them the story. Tell them again and again and again this authoritative story, this story to live by. That's what Genesis was for. And I believe that is what Genesis is still for. So how would I read Genesis as authoritative for today? Well, let's just think of a few things. And we've already talked about all of that stuff that I think we can live by still today. But just think about ecology for a second, because why not, right? Sunday morning. The God of the Bible is the creator of heaven and earth who creates us in his image and commissions us to steward the earth, to cultivate it, to take care of it. The environment and stewarding it should matter greatly to Christians. This is God's world, and we are called to tend and keep it. Now, if you grew up in the 80s, this was like this... um, Why can't I think of the term right now? Fatalistic view but i remember like in the 80s like uh, growing up like i would have my my skateboard break or my bike break they're like well it's all gonna burn right i don't like i was taught that probably not by my parents i don't think but just like this this view of the world that's just like oh screw it the world's fallen and broken like who cares you know bad things happen because the world sucks you know and you're just like yeah like maybe that's a gen x kind of carrying over into my generation uh which they still can't figure out where i belong um But I had this view of the world that was dismissive of the creation and dismissive of of art and beauty and technology and all these things because I had a wrong view of creation and I had a wrong view of new creation. When we really read this, when we read the story of the Bible, we've got creation to new creation, and we realize that God will redeem this world. He'll make it new, He'll make it whole again. And so then wow, I have a responsibility to cultivate this earth because it's not just all going to the trash heap and just to be thrown away, but it is to be renewed into the image of its creator. It is to be filled up with the glory of God. And so it gives me this mission and uh, purpose in all that we do. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go and read a little short story by Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle. That will kind of explain a little bit better what I'm talking about here. Let's talk about anthropology for a minute. In terms of identity and sexuality, humans, Genesis tells us, are created by God in his image. They are distinct from the rest of creation, from the earth, from the trees, and from the animals. It says he created mankind in his image. Male and female, he created them. Therefore, your sex is not accidental. It's not haphazard. I, I really sympathize for what's going on right now in our culture with gender dysphoria because we have pumped into the minds of our children that this world was birthed out of total chaos. Life is meaningless. 
It, it means nothing. It's going nowhere. And so, of course, when I feel out of sorts with my body, that makes sense with my worldview. I'm an accident. My sexuality must be an accident because I feel like a woman or I feel like a man. And I don't do those things that the culture says I should do as a man or as a woman. And so people are living in all sorts of confusion. But see, the storyline of the Bible, however God did it, he created us. It's not an accident. It's not haphazard and given up to chance. You are an image bearer of God. And who you are, the fact that you are male or female is not a mistake, but a call by God to fulfill a unique task as male or female and not a third option in bearing his image. Now, and even the fact that we feel out of sorts, out of touch with our bodies, is biblically supported by the idea of sin coming into the world. Because sin is chaos that is brought into the creation. It's disorder. It's de-evolution. And so we are, we are just naturally being moved away from that image bearing. And so, of course, we are going to feel out of sorts. We're going to feel out of touch with ourselves and our bodies. We're going to feel out of touch with other people. We're going to feel out of touch with God because we actually are. See, the, the, the biblical account makes sense of the world that we live in. And it can give us all sorts of guidance as we uh, pilot these dangerous waters that we're living in now in our culture. One more. Hopefully we see in Genesis the grand theme of longing for and needing a redeemer, a rescuer, right? We need the snake crusher, the long-awaited Messiah to come and deliver us from, the, from sin and chaos and death. We need, we need to be delivered. The world itself, the planet needs to be delivered. Genesis begins in a luscious garden in the presence of God, and it ends in a box in Egypt. You cannot get a more stark contrast. So they took Joseph, and they put him in a coffin. End of Genesis. Tune in next time. You know, it's just like, gosh. You read it in one sitting. The contrast is so great. Joseph's body in a coffin, waiting, longing for redemption, Longing for the great exodus. God will surely visit you, and when he does, carry my bones up from here, he says. This word of faith going forward, longing for, I believe, the greater exodus to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ as he delivers this world from bondage and slavery. See, we as God's people, just like the Israelites, we need the authority of Scripture to remind us of who we are. There are so many stories Narratives in our culture that are seeking to form and shape us into their image. We need God's authoritative word, the scripture to form us and shape us, to lead us into the flourishing life that God has for us, the way life was meant to be. Paul says this in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and it's, I think it's so powerful in light of what we just talked about. Therefore, I urge you, church, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul, how do I do that? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
It's through scripture that we renew our minds and we come to understand what God's will is, what is pleasing to God, what God has for us. Scripture as authority over our lives keeps us from the lies the devil tells us about ourselves in the world. It keeps us from the lies that the world tells us, the culture around us tells us about ourselves and about the world. And it will also keep us from the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the world around us. It declares that we are Yahweh's covenant people through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, called to mirror God's character and purposes in the world, called to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, to put that kingdom on display for the world to see. Scripture is where we are instructed in this way. And so scripture is God's story told to us in order to bring shape and direction to our lives. It is to be the controlling narrative and guide for daily life. That is how a story is authoritative. Last thing we need to cover. How do we know what parts of the Bible are authoritative for today? Great question. I'm glad you asked. I heard Dave Lomas from Reality San Francisco say this, and we're actually following that church and another church in the year of biblical literacy. But he said a good question to ask ourselves as we're reading is where are we at in the storyline? So when Israel is instructed in not mixing fabrics, not eating shellfish and other animals that are associated with death and predatory animals, where are we at in the storyline? Well, we are in the story of Israel and how they are specifically to live a life that is different, specifically because they know God and they're his covenant people. They need to be distinct, and and that distinction calls for all sorts of differences in lifestyle, and one of them is purity in worship. And then Paul Copan, anybody familiar with that name? He wrote an incredible book called Is God a Moral Monster?, and I think he did one of the best jobs of this, but he actually lists out the animals and uh, other things that are listed in Leviticus, and he shows how the things that are forbidden are constantly associated with death, and the things that Israel will be called to are, are associated with life. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. So, like, don't, don't put, um, you know, boil a goat in its mother's milk. <laughs> People in the room were like, what? are you talking about? So there's a commandment about this, like, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. And like, that's all it says. You're like, yes, of course, who does that, right? <laughs> Goat's milk is disgusting, anyway. Uh, I have a story about that if you ever want to hear it. Um, so you read that, and you're like, what does that have to do? Well, okay, so think about this for a second. If, if Paul Copen's right, these two categories, milk brings life bring strength to the, to the baby calf or the baby goat, right? It's the, the mother's milk that will bring strength to the bones. And then you're killing this animal and you're boiling it in the, in the milk. So you're mixing life and death together. And this, God says, don't do that. You are a people of life. And you can see this again and again in the narrative. It's fascinating. And like when you step back and look at that, you're just like, oh, wow, that is beautiful. Be a people of life. And as God calls him to this again and again, choose life choose life, choose the way that I put before you. But where are we at in the story? See, Israel was called to be distinct, to choose life. They had all of these ceremonies of purity um, inside and out to go and worship in the presence of God. And so with that brought 
washings, certain foods that they weren't supposed to go near. They weren't supposed to go near a dead body. It had all of these things to go with it. Levitical laws of purity and worship, diet, dress, cleanliness. But even in this story, as the story goes on, the Old Testament writers hint that the sacrifices and the temple worship regulations are pointing forward to something beyond them. They point forward that they'll come to an end. Even God himself, he's like, bring me your sacrifices and your bulls and your goats and all this. And then we get to the prophets and he's like, get rid of it. I hate it all. It's disgusting to me. You think I care about blood and bulls and goats? I want true righteousness in the heart. And all of this is pointing forward to the one, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who will bring true righteousness through his pure life. He is the spotless lamb of God who was given for the sins of the world. He is the true and greater sacrifice. He is the great high priest who brings us in finally and completely to the presence of God. See, even the Bible itself, the Old Testament would point forward to that. See, modern Christians are often charged with biblical inconsistency, picking and choosing which parts of the Bible we want to keep and which parts we don't out of convenience. It's, it's a false claim. And the problem is you have a biblically illiterate culture who's using the Bible to critique a biblically illiterate church. Memorize that, people. I know it's like toy boat, but you can do it. Biblically illiterate culture using the Bible to critique a biblically illiterate church. See, the church continues in the line of the early Christians who from the beginning read the ancient scripture in a new way. They recognized that some parts of the scripture were no longer relevant for their ongoing life. Not, we have to stress, because those parts were bad. See, this is what we often do. You read Paul, or your pastor preaches on Paul, and you're like, Moses bad, Paul good? Like, I, I don't get it. So part of the Bible's bad, and then I, I'm supposed to read it and supposed to obey it? It's bad. I don't get what's happening here. Not because those parts were bad or not God-given or less inspired, but because they belonged with early parts of the story which had now reached its climax in Jesus. That's N.T. Wright, uh, his The Bible and the Authority of God book. And so we just gave examples of this in, in Leviticus. Um, Paul makes it clear, here's another example, in places like Romans 13, 8, that the apostles understood the Old Testament moral law to still be binding on us. Um, I said this before, but you can actually find all of the Ten Commandments taught in the New Testament except for one. Do you guys know what it is? Sabbath. Good job. Yeah. The Sabbath law is not taught in the Bible explicitly. But every other of the Ten Commandments are. They're taught in the New Testament. But the apostles, Paul included, understood the Old Testament moral law to still be binding the coming of Jesus, though, changed how we worship, but not how we live. The moral law is an outline of God's own character, his integrity, his love, his faithfulness. And so all that the Old Testament says about loving our neighbor, uh, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, social relationships, and commitment to our family is still in force. The New Testament continues to forbid killing or committing adultery. And all the sexual ethic... Of the Old Testament is restated throughout the New Testament. So if the New Testament has reaffirmed a commandment, then it is still in force for us today. And that's what we seek to practice as the church. And so this, this charge of biblical, biblical 
inconsistency is just inaccurate. The people aren't reading the Bible the way that historically Christians have read the Bible. So let's, uh, let's be done talking about this, okay? Uh, conclusion. Here we go. And you guys, honestly, like studying this this week, uh, this is really hard for me. In my heart, I am much more pastoral than I feel like a study like this. This is much more like top shelf. And maybe some of these studies have just been that way. And there's part of me where I'm like teaching this. I'm like, I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about God's love and God's grace. But this is necessary stuff for us to, to go through and talk about. So saying all that, let's, let's just talk about the heart of God with Scripture for a moment before we close. So the Scripture what we've been saying, are the true authoritative word of God fulfilled in Jesus, teaching us and leading us into the flourishing life of God. And I think that's where we we have to come back to that again and again and again. When we read scripture, we have to read it in line with the character of God and never disconnected from that. So think about this. In scripture, God does not speak to us as a judge or lawmaker whose laws and commands are arbitrary and removed from real life. God speaks to us through the scriptures as a perfectly loving father. God speaks to us as dearly loved children whose well-being and blessing are his main concern. And so because of that, we listen to what scripture says. Don't divorce scripture from the heart of God. We learn what it teaches, and we make every effort by the Holy Spirit's empowering grace to repent of our sin, renew our minds, and redeem our lives for his grace and our flourishing. One of my favorite quotes um, actually comes from a Catholic, um, and his name is Pierre Letard, and he had this quote where he said, trust in the slow work of God. And what I would say is, back up for a minute. Think about God's character. Think about God, the grand narrative of Scripture when you're reading the Bible. Don't read the Bible as an isolated text. You will become discouraged. You will become Angry, and that anger will last. Don't read it outside of God's great plan from creation to new creation. Don't read it outside the context of God being a gracious, loving Father to us. Trust in the slow work of God. Trust that Father knows best, and you don't actually know what is best for your life, like a child doesn't. I have to have this conversation with my nine-year-old all the time. And, and you know, I, I used to think, man, I'm never going to say to my kid, you know, just obey me. I'm always going to give an explanation. And then I became a parent. You know, and there are just some things that Judah, Hudson, and Evelyn cannot understand at this point in time in their life. Doesn't mean that they won't understand them eventually, but they just can't understand them at this time. And I do think that there are parts of Scripture like that for us where we need to trust in the slow work of God. We need to trust the Father doesn't say that we, that we just forget it, sweep it under the rug, and move on. But we say, okay, I'm going to hold on to that, but I'm not going to hold on tightly. I'm going to think more about that, but I'm going to trust in the character of God, and I'm going to move forward through this. Because I believe 
God knows best. I believe God determines my flourishing because I know Jesus Christ. And I know God's great love for me displayed in the cross of Jesus. I see what Jesus did. I see what he gave up. I see what he became for me. I see the great love of God displayed in Jesus. And like we had in our first sermon, where else are we going to go? What, what, where else are we going to find love like this? Where else are we going to find a shepherd like this who will care for our souls? There's none that I know. And so I encourage you, read the Bible in that way, as a child with his father, as one who understands the great and grand narrative that God is going to bring new creation. He is going to bring life out of death, and he is going to make all that is sad come untrue, and he's going to make all things new. Sally Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite Bibles, the Jesus Storybook Bible, she says this, Some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show us how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. We obey God's word because he has proven to us, ultimately in Jesus, that he's trustworthy he loves us infinitely. He determines our blessing and good. The blessing of a whole life, a full life, a flourishing life, becoming who God created us to be through Jesus. We must always keep this in view when we read through Scripture. We read it through the lens of the love of God and the redemptive work of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Uh, Lord, the, the tides of this culture and of so many, Lord, in the church, Lord, have been shipwrecked on this question of authority. Lord, guard us from trying to control the Bible. Guard us from trying to make it about us and the good that we think we want and what we think is good and true and right and bring us back under the wing of your loving care. I pray, Lord, for anyone this morning, Lord, who feels outside of your presence, outside of your love. I pray, Lord, that they would be brought back in. John says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the payment for our sin, and not ours only, but for the whole world. And so if we confess our sins, you, Father, are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all righteous, unrighteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that if anyone feels outside this morning, Lord, they would confess and would know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses them, that they are not outside of your grace and outside of your love. And I pray, Lord, that they would be brought back under your fatherly loving care, grow to trust you and know you better, and to grow into the flourishing that you have for us. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would do that. We would subject ourselves to your law that the psalm says is sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. The law that is perfect, restoring our souls. Bring us under your loving fatherly care, we pray. And Lord, send us out to declare through word and deed how good our Father is and how great our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. We ask this 